Welcome to Season 5 of Tell Me a Story I Don't Know, refreshing and captivating interviews with sports personalities and their connections to Chicago. From Mike Greenberg to Ryan Dempster, Dan McNeil to Sarah Kustak, they reveal entertaining, memorable, and emotional stories some you've never heard before. I'm your host, George Hoffman, and please follow or subscribe to Tell Me a Story I Don't Know on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Tell Me a Story I Don't Know is proudly sponsored by Vienna Beef, home of the Chicago hot dog and an institution since 1893. Find them at ViennaBeef.com. And by Dynamic Manufacturing, awarded the General Motors Supplier of the Year 23 times. They can be found at DynamicManufacturingInc.com. This week, we feature USA Today's national baseball beat writer, Bob Nightingale. It was cool watching the home run race, uh, the great home run race in, in 98 with McGuire and Sosa. So I kind of had a choice, you know, you, you do McGuire or Sosa. McGuire always had that lead, so kind of stuck with McGuire. So here's you know, the record staying all these years by Roger Maris, and here's two guys about to break it. Who's going to win? I mean, that's some baseball... Uh, you know, really came back from the, from the strike. His name has become synonymous with baseball reporting. That's because Bob Nightingale has been doing it for over 30 years. From the Royals to the Padres and then the Major League beat, Nightingale has just about seen it all and not only written about it, but talked about it on radio, podcast, and as a member of the MLB network, meaning you can see him quite often. Nightingale has also covered a number of consecutive World Series, and he isn't the only Nightingale covering baseball these days, so... Bob Nightingale, tell me a story I don't know. <laughs> yeah, my first uh, beat covering baseball was the Kansas City Royals. And, uh, you know, and who comes up uh, early on there is Bo Jackson. So when the, when the Royals drafted Bo, we thought it was a publicity stunt. Like, okay, Bo was playing football and, you know, what's this about? Had no idea that he was that serious about baseball. And he was so uh, upset with the uh, Tampa Bay Bucks. He wanted no part of it. And so came to play baseball, went to Memphis, Tennessee, shot up to the uh, Royals. And so the office, you know, was going crazy over Bo. And so we're in Boston and uh, we agreed to uh, uh, meet for breakfast, talk for two hours and told me his life story, which was fascinating, you know growing up as poor as he did and his mom working you know, a million jobs trying to uh, get through but at the time you know people don't realize this that Bo had a tremendous tremendously uh, horrible uh, stuttering problem mm -hmm. so the question was you always say you know Bo he goes you know the reason I say that is because I cannot use the word I uh, I can't say the word I without stuttering so all these commercials all these things Bo knows this Bo knows that it was simply a byproduct uh, of a stuttering problem. Bo knows baseball. Bo knows football. Bo knows basketball, too. And he took so many courses and classes and everything else. Now, you know, now you barely even know it at all. But a, uh, you know, that was a, uh, a flaw of his. He realized if he wants to do public speaking appearances, obviously commercials, he had to improve that. And, and sure enough, he did all on his own. So for a while, he didn't trust anybody uh, except for myself. So we got, uh, we got along great. Uh, so when Bo does decide, he tells me uh, we're in Toronto. And right before the All-Star break, he goes, you know what? I'm going to play uh, football, too. I'm going to join the Raiders. Before anybody else knew about this, my teammates knew. There's nothing I have to hide from them. They've accepted what I've done. They're all glad that I'm trying to do it simply because I am hopefully will be the first person to do it and, and succeed at it. So he does. He plays uh, for the Raiders uh, you know, in, uh, in, in October when the Royal season is over. I go out to uh, Raiders camp. And so we're talking, you know, late 80s here. And uh, I just, you know, walk onto the uh, training complex and, uh, and watching the uh, watching the practice. And, uh, you know, I don't have any credentials or anything like that. Some guy comes running out as Al Locus Al, Al Davis's right-hand man, saying, who are you? And I said, oh, I'm just a reporter for the Kansas City Star doing a story on Bo Jackson. And he goes, how long do you plan on being here? 
He goes, I said, well, probably all week, you know. And uh, he goes, you know, we played the Chiefs coming up. I said, yeah, that's, that's what I'm here, kind of timing it up with that. He goes, you're here for one day, one day only. So the rest of the week, I had to interview all the players and stuff in the Raiders parking lot. So even uh, that paranoia was existing you know, way, way back then. Like he, actually, think, what I, he, I he, thought you were, he thought you were spying? Yeah, he thought I was spying for the Chiefs. <laughs> <laughs> well, all I was doing was doing a piece from Bo Jackson. <laughs> well, I have a memory of Bo Jackson I want to share with you. This is late in the 1993 season over on the south side. And the White Sox were eventually headed to the playoffs against Toronto. And Bo Jackson's at the plate, and he hits this towering fly ball. I mean, it's seemingly stayed in the air forever. It's deep to left field. The left fielder is going back, 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 and eventually the ball goes over the fence for a three-run homer, and White Sox fans went absolutely nuts. Bob, this is indelibly etched in my memory. I mean, he could have been, you know, an all-American gymnast, swimmer, what have you. The only thing he could do, as he told me, is he could play basketball. He couldn't dribble. Uh, but otherwise, you know, he could have been a great tennis player. He would do stuff. You know, I remember going to the Texas Rangers clubhouse, betting guys, hey, 20 bucks, I can jump over this table and, and do crazy stuff like that. He bring his bow and arrow in the clubhouse and shoot across. And, you know, you're ducking. Uh, but, yeah, he was a uh, unbelievable. Yeah, he could do anything he wanted in, in life. And I, uh, you know, still married to his wife, Lyndon, you know, even at the time she had a PhD in uh, psychology. So yeah, great, a great family. I want to talk about the state of baseball since you've been so intricately involved in the sport now for so many years, it just came off a really ugly labor war while trying to make the game more appealing and particularly to a younger generation. Considering attendance is down, Bob, and the medium age of those watching baseball on TV is a male around 58, is this the sport's greatest challenge? Fish clock is definitely coming. They need to speed up the game. And uh, you're going to, you know, ex the, the bases will be three inches bigger, trying to get more stolen bases. You know, uh, you know, limiting the shifts. You know, maybe you can still have four guys uh, – you know, to the uh, right of second base, but everybody's got to have their feet in the uh, infield. Uh, but yeah, just trying to get baseball back to where there's some action. Uh, you know, right now it's, you know, as someone put it to me, it's like a, uh, you watch your NFL quarterback, watching Tom Brady go back and throw a bomb every single play. Hey, it's cool and it works every couple of quarters, but you know, you get bored watching home run strike out or walk. Uh, you know, the beauty, the beauty about football is the drive. You know, the beauty of baseball is the rally, but we don't see rallies. Uh, you know, instead, it's, you, know, you, you can tell the sports got problem when they, uh, you know, Albert Pujols pitches in a blowout and people are going crazy over that. Or, or uh, Anthony Radone, you know, goes a plate, you know, hitting left-handed and hits a home run off a uh, position player, Brett Phillips. Well, I'm just, you know, gimmicky stuff uh you know when i was watching uh, bo jackson i remember bo jumped in the batting cage one day in the metrodome and uh, jumped in left-handed and you know they're yelling at him hey bo what, what, the, what are you doing he hit first first ball he saw he hits in the upper deck left-handed so guys can do it but you know it's, it's one thing you were doing against a real pitcher but you know it, it's a problem you know when people are making a big thing of these uh you know crazy little gimmicks, things like that, when position players are doing it, when really a team should be embarrassed doing it. I, I, was, I was stunned the Cardinals did it. I, I, I thought they were above that. When we were growing up, uh, a long game was like three hours or two and a half hours, and now a short or regular game is three hours and 20 minutes. And I know that they've tried the pitch clock in the minors and they've reduced the games by 20 minutes. 20 minutes is 20 minutes. It still seems like it's going to be a very long game. When you have teams like the Red Sox and the Yankees that are geared to take so many pitches that those games will still be long. What, what else can be done to make the game more attractive to a younger generation that doesn't seem to be interested in a lot of sports and not just baseball? 
No, and yeah, yeah. I mean, I misspoke when I said gimmick for the pitch clock. I mean, that's going to work. That bus can speed up by 25 minutes. But hey, you can have a great action-packed game. Uh, I don't care if it's four and a half hours. It's, you know, it's entertaining. But yeah, I mean, that's the real concern is just kids aren't playing baseball. I mean, you can go outside in uh, Chicago, George, and you know, drive along. You know, how many kids you actually see, uh, you know, playing baseball outside? Nothing, you know? nothing, Bob, nothing. It used to be all the diamonds were filled. I, I, and it's exactly the case I drive around now. Those, those diamonds are empty. Yeah. Yeah. Kids are bored by the thing. I got a lot of friends that had zero interest watching the game of baseball. I mean, when you think of an NFL past baseball popularity, you know, years ago, maybe decades ago, NBA is now past it. Uh, they've been careful or hockey's going to pass it too. I mean, uh, there's a reason why ESPN dumped all the baseball except for Sunday night and picked up hockey because they thought there was a, uh, uh, no, not, maybe not a dying sport is right, but certainly a, a, a sport where they were losing a lot of money doing it, and they think hockey is the way to go. Well, as of last year, I know attendance had dropped for an eighth straight season. Why? Are the games too long? Are they too expensive? Are there other reasons? People are, are, are bored, and people are, you know, look at the, what it takes to get families out now. you got to have, uh, you know, giveaways, whether it's bobbleheads, whether it's fireworks night, things like that. So baseball tennis this year is pretty flat, only down maybe one or two percent, which is actually encouraging, considering they came off the, uh, you know, the, the, the labor dispute and uh, started the season so late and uh, changed the schedule around a little bit. Well, let's go back to labor, because there seems to be a hue and cry to remove Rob Manfred as commissioner. Does the sport need new leadership? Remember, Rob Manfred works for the owners. I mean, if the owners had told Rob Manfred, hey, you can have a let's have a $300 million you know, luxury tax. He said, sure, what, you, if that's what you guys want, let's do it. So they pay us checks. Uh, you, know, and you know, the owners are used to, you know, making the good money that they love watching the, uh, the franchises go up in value. Remember, it took 27 votes for Rob Manford to become commissioner, despite, you know, Bud Zilling pushing hard for him. Uh, you know, Jerry Reinsdorf, a White Sox owner, was one of the ones who pushed against him. He thought he'd be better off having someone in ownership rather than a, uh, an outside person doing it. And uh, so I know, you know, Bob Manfred's the easy target and stuff, uh, but really he's just carrying out the wishes of owners. One more topic on this, and I'm just curious how you feel about this. It would seem inevitable that robot umpires are going to be part of this sport. What do you feel about that? I don't like it, but I, I think it's a, uh, it's a direct message for for the gamblers i mean if wasn't if baseball was not embracing gambling they wouldn't be talking about robo umpires but i think with all the money being put on baseball now and where you're having uh in in phoenix for instance right next to the ticket window is the betting windows mm -hmm. uh you know it, it's the uh if some calls calls go the wrong way in the seventh eighth ninth inning uh, you know, you're going to have death threats and everything else in umpires. Yeah. Umpires don't like it either. I mean, pretty soon you're going to be able to bet on every single pitch, you know, ball strike, you know, that's that sort of thing. So I think this is just a thing for uh, for the gamblers. I, you know, I, I think the umpires do a great job. And, you know, the box on TV is not right. They'll tell you that. So fans watching the games and stuff, it's like, you know, the boxes make a difference whether it's, you know, Jose Altuve at five foot five or, you know, or Aaron Judge at six, seven. Uh, and then, you know, sometimes Sue just swing the bat. I mean, you see these players go crazy because a, an umpire called a uh, strike when the ball was about a half inch outside. If it's close, swing. That's, that's the trouble. Uh, too many people are just looking to take walks instead of just go, go ahead and swing and trying to get some hits. Vienna Beef, two words synonymous with hot dogs. They're the home of the Chicago hot dog and an institution since 1893. If you've had a hot dog, chances are it was from Vienna. And did you know there are more locations selling Vienna in Chicago than McDonald's, Burger King, and Wendy's combined? There's nothing like biting into a juicy and delicious pure beef Vienna hot dog. Dragged through the garden, which includes yellow mustard, onions, relish, tomatoes, sport peppers, pickles, and some celery salt. And oh, those Polish sausages dripping with flavor. And look for the spicy smoked sausage available in your local retail stores. It includes a perfect blend of seasoning such as crushed red peppers and brown sugar, creating a bold and zesty taste. Vienna products are available in restaurants, grocery stores, and entertainment venues such as the Ballparks Cups, 
clubs and socks, stadiums, museums, and zoos. Plus, you can purchase them online, coast to coast at ViennaBeef.com and on Amazon. And remember, Vienna is not just hot dogs and sausages. Look for their farm makers' chili, mini bagel dogs, condiments, and classic deli meats. Take it from a guy who was weaned on, then sold Vienna products. It's the mark of excellence since 1893. Check them out at ViennaBeef.com. What is it about the game of baseball that's so alluring to you? It's the more you watch, the more you get into it, and the, and the knowing guys' personalities. I mean, it's going to be fascinating from pitch to pitch when a pitcher you know falls behind and gets ahead in the count, whatever he's doing, wherever he's thinking. Uh, you know, I know ESPN now you know mics up players during games. It'd be fascinating to have a mic on uh, a Toyota Rooster, Buck Showalter, the entire game just to see what what he's thinking. So, you know, I think the more you watch, the more you enjoy it. And when you get to, with the, when you get to guys, know guys' personalities, you know, you really find it fascinating. So I've always enjoyed it. I mean, you know, I was lucky to, you know, cover the Kansas City Royals to start with, you know, say a small market team and you're traveling with a you know, team and, and doing things like that. You're hanging out with guys. Yeah, you know, San Diego Padres, small market team. They got different when I cover the Angels. Okay. They're a uh, you know big market team. The Dodgers very big market team. So, but they uh, start off there and getting advice and stuff from guys like a uh, you know Hal McRae, uh, George Brett, Frank White, Willie Wilson. Those guys, you know, was, was great education. To top it all off, by the way, we of course have had the advent of Twitter, which in itself is a full time job. I mean, there has to be more pressure to break a story now than ever before. You know, nowadays, you know. Hey, you get a scoop, and let's be honest, 99% of these things are, are done through agents, uh, relationships with agents and writers. And yeah, you have a scoop for maybe uh, six, seven seconds. You know, it just, it's just not the same. With all this in mind, when do you sleep and how often? Well, during the trade deadline, you kind of keep your phone on. I usually, when I go to bed, turn it off, especially being on the West Coast. Otherwise, the phone's going to beep all night, you know, with different uh, Twitter, Twitter accounts. Uh, notifications, that sort of thing, uh, text messages, emails. So I'll put it on, you know, silent at night. But yeah, during the, uh, particularly during the trade deadline or something's about to happen, something's about to big, going to happen, you leave your phone on. And so you're interrupted constantly throughout the night, just whether it's a text message or just emails from office or, or somewhere else. Well, let me, let me tell you something. I have seen Bob in action and most notably at the winter meetings where hobnobbing is often and sleep is not. How many stories do you think you've cultivated through these seemingly endless days and nights? Yeah, I mean, usually you get your best information late at night at the bars. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and so, I'm, you know, usually the last person, you know, one, it's, if I'm not last, I'm tied for last, going to bed, <laughs> going to bed. And so I'll be there till you know, two, three in the morning. And, uh, you know, you're getting up a few hours later. You don't get to sleep during the winter meetings. Uh, too much stuff is going on. You know, 90% of it are just, you know, rumors or bad rumors. But you're still chasing the stuff down. Back in the day, when, when Kevin Towers was the general manager of the Padres, and I was very close with him. Uh, you know, he's passed away now. But we would be in his suite well, all night long, you know, I was the only, only reporter in there and Kevin was so popular. He'd have all kinds of different managers and GMs coming in there. Uh, remember once Lou, Lou Pinella, you know, working out a, uh, a trade on a cocktail napkin uh, with the, uh, with the Yankees. And it was three in the morning. And so they're sitting there telling Lou, Hey Lou, call Pat Gillick up. Who was the GM at the time. Call Gillick up and talk, talk about this trade. And Lou almost did it, but he was so afraid, like, hey, I can't call my boss at 3.30 in the morning. Let's do it in the morning. <laughs> and they did. They, they ended up getting a backup catcher called Tom Lampkin. <laughs> wow. You grew up in Albuquerque, New Mexico, and you really did fall in love with the game at a very early age. Yeah, well, actually, yeah, I actually grew up everywhere, George. The, uh, my dad was Air Force. So we moved every three, mm. four years. So, uh, you know, for instance, I was born in Texas and lived there for six weeks. You know, and then moved on to Columbus and then uh, bounced around. And the most fun time, I never lived in a baseball city. Now, got the, uh, my grandfather, my grandparents lived just outside New York City. And he was actually a, uh, a bookie, professional gambler. And they, uh, so he took me to all the Yankee games, the horse track and things like that. So 
I fell in love with uh, with all sports, really, particularly uh, uh, particularly basketball. You know, love football too. Uh, you know, baseball was fun. But just yeah, but you're living in Air Force bases. Never lived in this, uh, a city with a professional sports team. The closest was uh, when I was at the Air Force at the Air Force Academy. And then of course you had the, uh, you know, Denver Broncos and the uh, Denver uh, Rockets Nuggets, uh, you know, back when they were in the ABA, yeah. you know, that sort of thing. Weren't you a bat boy for the uh, the Dodgers AAA team in Albuquerque? Yeah, for a little bit, yeah, it was. Yeah, it was fun being around. I wasn't a full-time bat boy. You know, my parents were gonna haul me back and forth, won a little uh, bat boy contest. I forget the essay, how I, I got it. At the time, my dad was in Vietnam. And uh, so, yeah, did that. It was, it was a, uh, a fun summer being around those guys. And I, uh, you know, even had, remember, remember Willie Mays came in one time. It must have been some kind of injury rehab thing. All the kids are all standing outside trying to get Willie Mays autograph. And here's my little sister. And she says, uh, Mr. Mays, I don't want your autograph. Can I just, I just want to shake your hand. And sure enough, Willie Mays, you know, came over, shook her hand. Before you know it, we all have our hands stuck, stuck out trying to get them to check our hand, too. When did it hit you, I want to write about sports, and particularly baseball? You know, probably in high school. I, I uh, got into uh, journalism in high school, worked for the uh, high school newspaper, which was in Albuquerque, San Diego High School, and, uh, and liked sports. It wasn't necessarily baseball, though. I mean, I like, I said, all sports. Uh, Whatever season it was, that's the sport I was following. So uh, it was that sort of thing. And almost like, you know, my, my junior year, senior year in high school, it's like, okay, I want to be a sports writer. You know, went to college, Arizona State, thinking, okay, I, I want to be a sports writer here. And uh, worked in school paper for a couple semesters. But I was having too much fun in college. Like, okay, I don't want to be bored by this. Let me, I'll, I'll pick it back up when I, uh, my senior year, right before I graduate. You know, that sort of thing. But yeah, it was just, just a love of sports. Maybe not, not necessarily uh, writing about it, but just love, love and uh, being around it. Well, you managed to get yourself in a little bit of hot water early in your career. Tell me a story I don't know about a team called the Phoenix Inferno. Yeah, so when Tom's out of college, it was an indoor soccer team called the Phoenix Inferno. Phoenix on the attack. Parchment goes around Pesatelli. Drops it off on the right way, nobody there. So both teams uh, missing connections here early. Etherington the other way, Cressatelli and Ingram up front. Etherington in the middle, fires, save, rebound, Cressatelli. Obviously nobody wants to cover it, so they can you know, give the young kid uh, this team. So I'm covering the Kings Inferno, and it's just, you know, kind of, it's kind of a fun little sport. You know, it's just a uh, indoor soccer, a lot of scoring. And I get a tip from, I mean, I didn't know who it was until years later. And he says, hey, you know, our uh, ownership's a little uh, shaky here. We're paying players in cash now. And you know what? And uh, he goes, yeah. And he said, you know, the owner of the team, a guy named Herb Berger, is really not the owner. It's these four guys in uh, Miami. Well, I'll do more research. And this guy's uh, provide me some paperwork. I remember one weekend being outside their dumpster. Uh, looking up a uh, you know different uh, letters and stuff they had, and sure enough, the, the team is owned by I want to say four or five, six guys of the Cuban mafia in Miami, making more phone calls and you know FBI agents and DA and stuff like that, and uh, it was wild. The previous owner had been killed in a in a car crash. Now it's like very suspicious, and then uh, and so I'm on to it. I'm starting to get threats because they realized that I'm on to it. And there was a reporter for the Rosary Republic, uh, I'll say the late 70s or early 80s or something. He got, uh, no, it must have been 70s, uh, was killed by a car bomb. And I got worried about that too. And uh, because of oh. the threats. So I started every day, I would uh, look under my car, open the hood to make sure there's not a bomb. Jeez. Yeah, drive to work and, and security. I was able to park in a secure lot for a while when I was at work too. But it was that shaky. I'd even hit, I'd hit hide my notes uh, on this case <laughs> under my bed at night. <laughs> that sort of thing, I locked the door. You went from Phoenix to Kansas City, but you weren't reporting on baseball first. What were you doing? Yeah, they got me there to cover uh, basketball. And uh, I said, this is great. Uh, go to cover uh, Kansas City Kings. 
and they stay one year and uh, moved to Sacramento. Uh, baseball writer at the time, Tracy Rendlesby, he was in the, uh, in the baseball wing of the Hall of Fame, says, hey, why don't you uh, cover baseball with me? It's a, it's a, it's a two-paper uh, two town, same uh, ownership. So a, a you know, morning edition, afternoon edition. And so, and I did that. And uh, Tracy taught me very much how to cover it. You know, hey, you show up early. So we're showing up the ballpark at two in the afternoon every time. We're in the clubhouse all day, all night. Uh, taught me how to be respectful for the uh, players. Get to know scouts. He says, they love to talk. Get to know umpires. And uh, so my baseball writing career really shaped by what Tracer Ringlesby uh, taught me. You know, he, mm-hmm. he, meant, he was a great mentor. Want to hear more great guests on Tell Me a Story I Don't Know? It's easy. Just follow me on social media, at George Offman. That's O-F-M-A-N. I'm on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And please follow or subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Save big money at Menards. Let the fresh air in and keep the bugs out with replacement screen for your doors and windows from AdForce. It's easy to install, durable against the elements, and comes in a variety of types to suit your needs. Repair your screens today with a roll of replacement screen on sale through May 5th. And check out more great deals happening now in our weekly flyer on Menards.com. Save big money at Menards. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. You wound up covering the Padres for the LA Times for, I believe it was nine years, and that led to a breakup. Eventually, you went to USA Today, where you've been since 1998. So what happened? Actually, uh, so I did the Padres from my, uh, God, what was it? Uh, I'm trying to think, oh, left Kansas City in the summer of 92, and uh, what to do the Padres. Uh, did them for a, a couple of years, then did the Angels. And the Angels for a couple of years, then did the Dodgers. So covered all three in, uh, in, in Southern California. As it went when the LA Times had a San Diego edition, had an Orange County edition, and of course, the regular downtown edition. And uh, I enjoyed it. And they, uh, they, one of the uh, stories I did when I was coming to Dodgers, it was, uh, you know, the anniversary of Jackie Robinson. This is before it ever got popular. And it's like, well, it's kind of weird. I mean, here's, here's the Dodgers. I think the only black player they had at the time was Wayne Kirby. And just a, uh, you saw stuff in the organization, like they're living off Jackie Robinson, but yet, you know, never had a, uh, a black manager, GM, uh, the whole Al Campanis thing. Mm-hmm. And just kind of did a, uh, a series on what was going on with the Dodgers and kind of living off this thing. Well, obviously, uh, Dodgers, you know, seed over the uh, stories, the uh, owner of the Dodgers, you know, uh, Peter O'Malley. Uh, it was livid, talked to people all the times. They were upset. Everybody was upset. And so uh, then you know, <laughs> led me to the path of uh, USA Today. Uh, so I've been at USA Today from uh, 98 on. And, you know, that's the last time I covered a beat. You've often reported and have really been an outspoken critic on race. I remember Dusty Baker when he was with the Cubs railing about racism I read a wonderful article you wrote about the White Sox, Kenny Williams, and his disappointment with the game's lack of diversity. There's a reason you write passionately about this, isn't there? Yeah, I mean, ever since the uh, 
God, you know, pretty much covering the Dodgers in baseball. It's just, you know, it, it stuck out so much. And you saw people saying uh, racist things, racist activities. Uh, you know, uh, my, my family's black. And so uh, we had to move apartment complexes in Borough Beach because they wouldn't let my kids swim, this, uh, swim the swimming pool. This is the 90s now. I'm not talking about the 50s or 60s. You, what, in the 90s, they wouldn't let you do this? Yes. Yeah, 90s. This oh, one from the Dodgers at Vero Beach, and they, uh, which is a very segregated city. You know, and they, uh, so Dusty and, uh, you know, the former Dodgers would tell the stories where, hey, you, know, you have to live in this uh, part of town. You can't do this. Uh, and that's pretty much why the Vero Beach, when the Dodgers had all the housing for players, because they knew they couldn't just stay in any apartment complex or rent house because uh these guys can all get rooms uh you know and, you know going back to jack jackie robinson days so yeah and then so now every single year i do a thing on you know uh race and baseball you know permit pretty much you see a plummeting uh number of black players in the game you know now it's you know right around 6.8 percent 6.9 percent uh but still i mean for ken williams and chicago white Sox now to be the only you know African American running a uh, baseball operations department, you know, is ridiculous. Uh, there's only been two guys hired, two uh, black executives hired to run baseball operations since he got hired in two, you know, twenty some years ago. Uh, you know, Dusty Baker was talking about this and went to uh, Houston for his two thousandth win, and talking about hey, you know, how important it was that he becoming the first black manager to win two thousand games. You know, looking around, saying, "Well, the only black manager in baseball, you know, is uh, Dave Roberts of the Dodgers." And you know, Dusty says, "Hey, when I came up, you know, but you know, four or five uh, black managers." He goes, is, it, "Is this progress?" You know, that, that's the thing. I mean, they uh, baseball's done a deplorable job in, in the hiring hiring practices. Uh, you know, they talk about diversity, fine, but not but not diversity when it comes to hiring uh, African American managers and GMs. You just mentioned only 6.8% of African-Americans are in the major leagues. That was 8% a few years ago when I talked to Kenny Williams. And I believe 30 years ago, that was somewhere around 28%. And is this part and parcel because of the other sports that young black kids are migrating towards basketball and football and not baseball? Yeah, I mean, it's just so different. I mean, take Kyler Murray, for instance. Mm-hmm. So the Oakland A's draft him. They, 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 they think he's a special talent. Uh, you know, they uh, give him $6 million. You know, he's a quarterback in Oklahoma. And, uh, hey, come uh, play baseball. And he's fired up. And so he says, hey, I'd like to stay at Oklahoma one more season. I'm going to be the starting quarterback this year. Well, what happens? He was the Heisman Trophy. And then all of a sudden now, he's going to be a, a first-round draft pick and a mid-first-round draft pick. Well, before you know it, he's the number one pick in the country. And uh, they had no chance. I mean, they brought in different marketing people and things like that. He's like, you know, if you're Kyler Murray, okay, yeah, $6 million signing bonus is nice. But I can get about a, uh, you know, whatever it was, $15, $20 million signing bonus from football. And I can be, um, you know, starting quarterback for the Arizona Cardinals every Sunday. I'm not running buses for uh, – two, three years of minor leagues, hoping I make it. So you just have that, you know, that instant gratification. I mean, even if you go to high schools, you know, you know, the only people at baseball, baseball games are a, uh, the family members, girlfriends, things like that, where, you know, football, the stands are filled, basketball, the stands are filled. So uh, it's just different. And I think, I think a big problem too, George, is that in uh, baseball, you only give out what, 11.7 scholarships and hardly anybody gets a full ride. So if you're a family that can't afford a, uh, you know, pay your way through college, you're going to pick a sport that does pay your way through college, and that's, you know, football or basketball. Several years ago, you added television to your vast resume by joining the MLB network. Do you like television? It's interesting. You know, at first they uh, kind of get nervous doing it. Then you, you know, then once you think about it, you're just talking just like you were on the radio or podcast, you know, like we are now, then it's no, no big deal. Jason Giambi called it a career after 20 seasons, did so on Monday. But what is next for that? We bring in our MLB Network insider, Bob Nightingale, who joins us. So what is next for Jason Giambi? Could he possibly manage someday? He will manage one day, Paul. I mean, everybody raves about this guy. Terry Francona, the Indians manager, you know, said he's a manager waiting. The only, the only uh, really attraction, I, I just do it very sporadically, is that a... Uh, 
baseball players watch it. So you're trying to get, you know, to a wider audience and they know who you are when you walk into a clubhouse. That part's cool. That, that's the, uh, that's the advantage of it. Uh, being on TV. It's like, you'll, you know, go somewhere with guys that are on TV, you know, people at a bar or restaurant. Oh, well, Hey, I know you. Hey, can I get, you know, can I talk to you? Can I get a picture? And, uh, but it's always, you know, the, the TV uh, personnel is not the newspaper people. <laughs> if anybody can tell a story and you've got a lot of them, tell me one about a team flight involving a hall of famer and a rather notorious player. Yeah. So this in Kansas city. Uh, and once in a while we'd go on team flights, some places I know like in Cleveland and Oakland writers were on team flights all the time. We did it sporadically when it was a convenience. And so uh, we're in Boston. It's a three-game series at Fenway Park. And uh, the Royals get swept in uh, the controversial call in the ninth inning. Now, this quote you couldn't say today, but back then it was funny. Nowadays, people would be very upset. But George Brett uh, said, I guarantee you there will be a woman elected president before Wade Boggs is ever called out on the third strike at Fenway Park. <laughs> and you know, and uh, so they're in a rod mood. They go on the plane. I'm with the, uh, uh, Dick Cagle, who's coming to the Royals with me. And uh, <clears throat> team plane, kind of late taking off. And the pilot says, hey, you guys can't, uh, we can't take off unless everybody's in the seat. George Brett looks back and sees Willie Wilson kind of messing around with back there, uh, flight attendant or somebody. He says, Willie, sit the hell down. And instead of just Willie sitting down, he stands up and says, come and meet me. Sure enough, George goes toward him. Willie goes toward him. They scope on the plane. Security from the airport comes on the plane. Uh, now we're late, about two hours late. We're, we're, we're flying to Milwaukee. So plane takes off about you know hour into it. Jim Fry, who's one of the coaches of the Royal staff, said, hey, this is our plane. You guys can't write about it. And I said, Jim, you got, you got to write about it. I mean, it's a, it's a big thing. You know, there are broadcasts on the, on the plane, too. And you go, we're going to get out. We have to write about it. And he goes, well, we're giving you courtesy of, flight, of the plane. Now, you know, I think back then we paid for the plane, but still, it was a courtesy being on it. But he made such a great point. We wrote about it, but the point was made. Last time I remember went on a team flight again. Like, I just didn't want that conflict of interest ever to happen. Remember one time we were in Cleveland. Uh, Dick and I come in from some Cleveland bar, maybe 1, 1.30 in the morning. And uh, going back in, we see a, a, a pitcher uh, going out. He's got a drink in each hand, a woman in each arm. Uh, say, you know, hey, see you tomorrow. Have fun. And uh, show up. It's a hot and steamy day in, uh, in Cleveland. And then it kind of dawns on both of us. Oh, my God. The same pitcher we saw last night is the starting pitcher today. So we said, uh, said, oh, this would be interesting. Sure enough, he goes about three and a third innings, gives up, you know, seven, eight runs, gets chill. <laughs> so we go in after the game and says, uh, hey, what, what happened today? He goes, you saw me, you saw me last night. You know what happened. <laughs> we, said, uh, <laughs> we said, okay, well, what can we write? Uh, I just said I didn't have my good stuff today. Okay. <laughs> and that was that. That was kind of the, uh, I, don't, I don't know what happened these days, but those days were very commonplace. Did you know General Motors 2021 Supplier of the Year is located in Hillside, Illinois? Dynamic Manufacturing not only remanufactures transmissions for the likes of GM, but also as a state-of-the-art facility. Its capabilities include engineering new or existing products, along with manufacturing, machining, logistics, and re-energizing used batteries for electric cars and energy storage systems. I've seen their operation firsthand, and their nearly 1 million square feet of operating space is extremely impressive. Dynamic was founded by the late, great John Partipillo in 1955 and is still family-owned and operated by the next generation. For more information about Dynamic Manufacturing, visit their website at dynamicmanufacturinginc.com. Dynamic Manufacturing. Honor the legacy. Pioneer the future. You've seen thousands and thousands and thousands of baseball games. There's always going to be forgettable games and games that you will always remember. Can you pinpoint one that always seems to stand out? 
Well, yeah. I mean, uh, one particularly uh, for just drama was 86 uh, World Series, Mets, Red Sox. Red Sox, of course, you know, had it won a million years since 1918. And, uh, and they're going to win the World Series. They're up by two runs. Nobody, uh, nobody on, two outs. Everybody's running their leads. And there was a uh, some type of rain delay during the game, too. So we're all kind of on deadline. We're all running exercises with ghosts and stuff like that. And sure enough, you know, that's put a little rally together. And literally, people start paying attention when the tying run score, uh, scored. It's like people had their heads down there in their, you know, uh, Radio Shack computers, not even paying attention. And, you know, Mets come back. Everybody's tearing up their stories. Too late to even get quotes in. And then, uh, of course, uh, Mets go on to win the World Series. So, Van Roos lead never makes it, you know, the light of day. Well, uh, I, I still but, find it amazing, by the way, how the Red Sox fans forgave Bill Buckner, who, of course, made that famous error called by Vin Scully. Little roller up along first, behind the bag, it gets through Buckner. Here comes Knight, and the Mets win it. When he returned to Fenway Park 27 years later to throw out the first pitch, he got a two-minute roaring standing ovation. Won't you please welcome him back to Boston and let him know that he is welcome always. Number six, Bill Buckner. Yeah, I always felt so bad for a nice guy in that a, uh, you know, the game was already tied. The game was already blown when that ball went past him. So two years later, I'm coming to the Royals in spring training. Buckner's on that team. Calvin Schiraldi, who had a miserable series for the Red Sox, is on that team. And uh, Shaq Crawford, who actually played a role, was on that team. So I remember doing a spring training story and all three guys just talking about, you know, what if. Uh, <clears throat> that sort of thing. You know, the other game that stands out similar was uh, the famous David Freeze game, you know, two, 2011. Oh, yeah. When the Texas Rangers twice, or with one strike of winning the first World Series, and then, uh, you know, things happen. The ball gets over Nelson Cruz's head. Uh, uh, it was crazy. And then the uh, so Rangers don't win the World Series. But it seems like game sixes, whether it's Dalton Fisk or, or these games, are always so much better than game sevens. There's another game you covered, and a rather emotional one, involving a man with an asterisk after his name. Yeah, it was cool watching the home run race, uh, the great home run race in, in 98 with McGuire and Sosa. So... We had a, uh, you know, guys in each city following both McGuire. I kind of had a choice, you know, you, you do McGuire or Sosa. McGuire always had that lead, so kind of stuck with McGuire. And, uh, I mean, at, at that time, I mean, had a home run race. was on the cover of Time Magazine. They were breaking the, you know, the evening news, uh, national, national story. So here's, you know, the record staying all these years by Roger Maris. And here's two guys about to break it. Who's going to win? I mean, that's a baseball uh you know, really came back from the from the strike, and so McGuire breaks it that night. Down the left field line, is it enough? Gone. There it is. Sixty-two. Touch first, Mark. You are the new single-season home run king. He rounds the bases. The stadium goes crazy at uh, in St. Louis. Uh, he picks up his son, Matt, jumps in his arms, and he goes straight over to the, uh, the Roger Maris family where his kids are and his wife is, and all hugging. And I swear to God, and don't let the whole press box is in tears. Unbelievable. Next day, I think I, even, I uh, went to Bush Stadium on the morning and do some kind of TV thing. And I remember just picking up some blades of grass and putting it in my pocket. So, oh, man, this is right about where it was. No idea what, what happened to that, those blades of grass, I'm sure was on my pocket by the time I left St. Louis. But it was just wow. a, uh, a cool emotional thing. Of all the things I covered, you know, I've seen you know, Bonds break these records and different guys get milestones. But that one will always stand out. You have a pretty good streak of covering World Series, and that includes watching the Sox and Cubs break very, very long droughts. Yeah, Sox one was the first... Uh, the first only uh, World Series parade I went to. And even though they swept, I think I still had a return ticket to Chicago. So I might as well go back and uh, go back and watch the parade. Went to Harry Carey's restaurant for a while and, you know, enjoy myself. I mean, it was such a one-sided World Series. But I remember one game was able to 
Stewart Stern and Jerry Reinsdorf just in his suite. Just was, you know, look on his face winning the, winning the World Series because baseball means, you know, so much to him. You know, when that famous quote he is saying, yeah, I'd give up all these uh, Bulls, Bulls NBA title rings for one World Series ring. I mean, he was, he was telling the truth. Here's the 1-2 pitch to Palmero. A ground ball past Jenks up the middle of the infield. Uribe has it. He throws. Out! Out! A White Sox winner and a World Championship! The White Sox have won the World Series and they're mobbing each other on the field! And then, of course, the Cubs. Everybody knew the Cubs, you know, we're going to be good. This was a year. And then, you know, go down 3-1 to Cleveland. Like, okay, maybe it's a, uh, you know, one year too early. And then Cleveland has just run out of pitching. Trevor Bauer had the drone incident. Uh, he's not pitching. They're on fumes. So there's game seven. You know, the game was actually awful for a while. Cubs had a big lead. It was just a question of, uh, you know, when the Cubs are going to do it, you know, more than half the crowd is uh, all uh, Cub fans because mm -hmm. Cleveland fans had given up their tickets. And I remember talking to the office. It's like, okay, if Cleveland wins this game, am I writing about Cleveland win the World Series or am I writing about the Cubs choking? It's almost like, okay, let's just kind of get a 50-50 mix. Uh, but yeah, I'll, I'll hand, it to, hand it to Aldo Shatman for him to give up that home run and then come on the ninth and shut him down. I never thought that was happening. I thought once he came on the ninth, it was it was over. I was surprised he uh, he was the guy to come back out, and uh, yeah, it paid off. A little bouncer slowly toward Bryant. He will glove it and throw to Rizzo. It's in time, and the Chicago Cubs win the World Series. The Cubs come pouring out of the dugout, jumping up and down like a bunch of delirious ten-year-olds. The Cubs have done it. Very cool. I wasn't in Chicago for that World Series parade, but I was watching every moment on, on TV, which was a blast. Now let me tell you a story you don't know about Bob and me. It's 2004. It's the first of my three years on the baseball beat for radio station WSCR, The Score. It's July 31st. That's the trading deadline. It's soon to expire. I'm working feverishly at Wrigley Field on a possible trade of Nomar Garcia Parra to the Cubs, their premier shortstop. You know this, you know what's going on, and suddenly you confront me and you give me the story. This is before social media. I put it on the air first. So now I have a chance to publicly thank you for making me look good. <laughs> yeah, I remember that. I had a, uh, some players in the clubhouse uh, text me and said, hey, Garcia Parra just got traded. I said, you kidding me? And they, uh, and yeah, it was a, uh, that was fun. Like, it was like, you know, fun back in, in the days before, you know, social media really took off or anything like that. And they, uh, you know, the trades are always the most fun, you know, free agent signings, you know, okay. But trades, particularly uh, big trades are always fascinating. I'm probably more fascinated now about, you know, after the trade has happened, just kind of like, you know, I love those stories about, how a trade was made and what went into it and, uh, the, you know, the uh, give and take. So, yeah, Garcia Parra obviously was a uh, very big name. I mean, a household name, obviously, in Boston. You aren't the only Nightingale writing baseball these days. Your son, Bobby, is the beat writer for the Cincinnati Reds. You've got to be awfully proud about that. Yeah, it's very cool. You know, at one point, he was talking about becoming a, a broadcaster. So he goes to a Bradley University, you know, Charlie Steiner School yes. of Broadcasting, and, uh, and, and or, or journalism, let me say. And, uh, but yeah, uh, same thing, just always enjoyed uh, sports. It wasn't just baseball, it was around me and baseball, but, you know, he liked them all, really. Uh, loves college basketball. And then goes to a, uh, graduates from college, and they have an opening uh, in Lawrence, Kansas to cover high schools where one of my best friends, Tom Keegan, as you know, yes. uh, from Chicago, he's a sports hitter. He takes a flyer on Bobby. Bobby goes there and excels. He's covering KU. And then uh, uh, St. Choir calls about baseball opening. He applies, and sure enough, he gets it. You know, Choir took a chance on him, and, uh, and he's you know, kept taken off ever since. You know, now he, he gets more job offers now than I ever got him my entire life. You know, people <laughs> knocking, knocking at his door. But yeah, he, he enjoys it. I mean, same thing. He loves all sports. Uh, we'll see if he sticks to baseball. But yeah, I can see him becoming a columnist. He, he's loved politics. I, I thought he was going to political writing one day. Uh, I think it was a, a Democratic uh, 
chairman over at, at Bradley University for the, when he was a student there. So yeah, I'm very proud. And we talk so much now. You know, I was just about what's going to baseball or, hey, how about this lean? How about what should I do in this situation? That, that stuff, talking about the business. So is there a chance when the day you decide I'm just not going to write anymore that you'll be replaced by a Bobby Nightingale? <laughs> Good. I, I would love that. I would love that. I mean, he got a uh, job offer from the uh, Athletic about a year ago. And, yeah. and I actually called up uh, one of my bosses at, at USA Today and said, hey, what do you think you should do here? He ended up, he ended up staying. But one of the editors actually threw that idea out there and said, hey, one day we thought about, you know, maybe when you're done, Bobby can take over. So I don't know if he just said to set it, maybe feel good. But yeah, so that, that, possibility, that possibility is there. Oh, I, I think they should just rename the newspaper, the sports section, the USA Nightingale. <laughs> I ask this final question to all my guests. If not for baseball, what would you have been? No, I was big into uh, social work. I think I would have gone to uh, social work. Uh, I, I really do. I mean, a lot of sports and stuff like that, but that didn't, uh, if that didn't work out, yeah, I don't know if I would have covered a, uh, you know, well, I, mean, I would have covered a different sport if the uh, opportunity presented itself. But just uh, probably not for journalism. Yeah, I would have gone to social work and, and did that. Continued success, Bob. You've been a credit to the industry, to the sport you cover. And thank you, Bob Nightingale, for telling me a story I don't know. Yeah, my pleasure. Thank you as always. Thanks, George. My thanks to Nike, the MLB Network, NBC Sports, the Red Sox TV Network, Fox Sports, WMVP Chicago, and WSCR The Score for those terrific highlights. My thanks, as always, to T.J. Reeves for being a guiding force behind this podcast, Will Hatzel for his expert editing and mixing, and Nick Tochi for our excellent graphics. And to our wonderful sponsors, Dynamic Manufacturing and Vienna B for their generous support. Tune in next week for another episode of Tell Me a Story I Don't Know. I'm George Hoffman, and that's all she wrote. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details.